Hi there, and welcome to the History of Ancient Greece. My name is Sam Hume, the host of a podcast on the history of the British Empire, Pax Britannica. I last appeared on Ryan's show a couple of years ago as the host of the History of Witchcraft, and he's very kindly allowed me on again. Pax Britannica is a narrative which is currently coming to the end of the reign of James VI and I. So far, I've looked at the colonies in Ireland, Virginia, Bermuda, and New England, the first years of the East India Company, and the domestic events of James's reign, gunpowder plots, court corruption, and the first attempts to unify England and Scotland into a single state. If you want to listen to that story, then Pax Britannica is available on all good podcasting apps. Now, on with your regularly scheduled podcast. Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 97, The Road to Peace. In Episode 95, we briefly mentioned how an Athenian diplomatic mission to Persia supposedly never made it to the great king's court because of a dynastic crisis following the death of Artaxerxes in the early winter of 424-423 BC. Well, we are going to begin today's episode by bringing events in Persia up to speed. The 5th century BC Greek physician and historian, Stesius, in his History of Persia, called Persica, offers the only account of what happened after the great king's death. He says that Artaxerxes' wife and the Persian queen, Damaspia, died on the very same day, though no explanation is given as to why, nor is it stated where they died. Perhaps it was because of old age, as Artaxerxes was born at some point during the reign of his grandfather, Darius the Great but the circumstances seem very suspicious. The fact that both the king and the queen died on the same day, supposedly, makes it seem like foul play. Regardless, Artaxerxes had ruled for a long reign of 31 years, and his death resulted in at least three of his 18 sons fighting over the Persian throne. He was officially succeeded by Xerxes II, who was reportedly the only legitimate son between him and Damaspia. The other 17 were apparently bastards, as Artaxerxes had many concubines, as well as an unspecified number of illegitimate daughters. Although Xerxes II was crowned prince, he was only recognized as the king in Persia proper, but not in any of the other Persian territories. Persia proper is considered to be the territory of Persis in southwestern modern-day Iran that contained Pasargadae and Persepolis which were two of the four Persian capital cities. Since it was wintertime, we can assume that Xerxes II was at Susa, which was another one of the four Persian capital cities, and the one that served as the winter residence for the Achaemenid kings. Susa was part of the territory of Elam, which stretched from the west down to the southwest of modern-day Iran, bordering Persis to the northwest. And so the Elamites likely recognized Xerxes II too as king, though Stesius does not explicitly mention them. 
Perhaps the rest of the territories in the Persian Empire would have eventually followed suit, but unfortunately for Xerxes II, his reign would prove to be short-lived, as he ruled for only 45 days during the early winter of 424-423 BC. He was reportedly assassinated by three court officials, a eunuch named Pharnacius, and two others named Bagorazos and Menostanes. Bagorazos had served Artaxerxes as a high-ranking Persian courtier, and Menostanes was a member of the royal family, as a nephew of Artaxerxes, and thus a cousin of Xerxes II. One evening, they entered the royal palace at Susa, and awaited for Xerxes II to return from getting good and drunk at an unspecified festival. After he fell asleep in the royal quarters, they came out and stabbed him to death. It's not specified as to what reason they conspired to do this, but it was done supposedly on the orders of Xerxes' half-brother, Secondianus, who sometimes was also known as Sogdianus. He was an illegitimate son of Artaxerxes with a concubine named Alagine of Babylon, since there were no other legitimate Persian royal sons remaining. With Xerxes' death, Secondianus staked his claim to the kingship, but he only was recognized as the official king in Elam, likely due to his current residence in Susa. Unfortunately for Secondianus, other illegitimate sons of Artaxerxes had the same idea, and he would have to deal with at least one rival claimant to the throne, though it could have been more, as the sources are scarce here. Once Secondianus ascended to the throne at Susa, as a token of thanks, he instated Menostanes as his Azabaratis, or head of the royal bodyguard, which was one of the highest-ranking officials at the Persian court. No reward is mentioned for Pharnacius, though he presumably was paid handsomely in some way. As for Bagorazas, afterwards he departed Susa to retrieve and bring back the corpses of Artaxerxes and Demaspia to their final resting spot at Naxtiest Rostum, an ancient necropolis for members of the Achaemenid royal family that was located about 7 miles, or 12 kilometers, northwest of Persepolis in Persis. But apparently an unspecified old hatred had secretly burned between Bagorazos and Secondianus, which makes you wonder why the two had conspired together anyways. Regardless, when Bagorazos returned to Secondianus at the royal palace of Susa, he was arrested and stoned to death. Consequently, the army was outraged, and although the king tried to buy their loyalty by offering gifts to the soldiers, many of the officers secretly held him in contempt because he had murdered both his brother, Xerxes II, and now Bagorazos. It was now January 423 BC, and to make matters worse, Secondianus began to receive news that some members in the military were openly throwing their support behind one of his half-brothers, Ochus. He also was an illegitimate son of Artaxerxes, with a concubine named Cosmartidine of Babylon. Ochus had married his half-sister, Perisatis, a daughter of Artaxerxes and another concubine named Andia of Babylon, and he was serving as the satrap of Hecarnia, which comprised the territory located around the southeast of the Caspian Sea, in central modern-day Iran. So Secondianus sent numerous messages summoning Ochus to Susa. Each time, Ochus promised that he would come, but he repeatedly failed to do so. When he finally acquired a large enough army to support his ambitions, he openly proclaimed himself as king. As a result, Arbarios, the commander of the cavalry under Secondianus, defected to Ochus' side, and he was soon followed by Arxanes, the satrap of Egypt, and a eunuch named Artozaris, who joined them from the lands of modern-day Armenia. 
Alongside with the satrapy of Hakarnia, Ochus officially would be recognized as king in Egypt, Babylonia, Persis, and Media, which is the territory located in northwestern modern-day Iran that had Ecbatana as its capital, and it was the fourth of the four Persian royal capitals. There were now two Persian kings, and this would remain the status quo into the summer of 423 BC. On the advice of his sister-wife, Perisatis, Ochus decided to invite Sectinianus to his court at Persepolis so that they could hash things out peacefully. Menestanes, though, warned Sectinianus not to trust his half-brother. Despite this, he went anyway, and unsurprisingly, the deceitful Ochus had him captured and ordered him to be executed for treason. Sectinianus only ruled for six months and fifteen days in 423 BC and he died by one of the many peculiarly horrible forms of execution that appear in Stasius. Because Ochus had made a promise to him that he would not die by the sword, by poison, or by hunger, he instead suffocated him with ash. The Roman author Valerius Maximus adds that during executions with ash, they were soaked in alcohol and taken through a palace door and thrown into a pit filled with hot embers. In addition, Pharnacius was also executed possibly in the same way, but Menestanes committed suicide. So now, all four conspirators against Xerxes II were dead. In order to consolidate his power, Ochus adopted the name of Darius, known to history as Darius II, though Greek sources often call him Darius Nothos, or the Bastard. Regardless, this would be the first adoption of a throne name on the Persian record, a concept that would become the norm subsequently among the Achaemenid kings. There probably were also additional rival claimants to the throne from some of Artaxerxes' other bastard children, but the individual names and how he dealt with them is not recorded. Regardless, none of them were successful, and Darius II would be the sole ruler of the Persian Empire from 423 to 404 BC. Although historians know little about his reign, as the Persian monarch, he loomed large in the background during the middle stages of the Peloponnesian War, and played a prominent part in its ending. In particular, at some point after he gained the Persian throne, he may have been involved in the signing of an official or unofficial peace treaty with the Athenians. Again, as we discussed in episode 95, the Athenians had intercepted a Spartan message from the then-Persian king Artaxerxes, and instead sent their own ambassadors but when they learned of his death, they returned home. Thucydides mentions no further attempt at negotiations between the Athenians and the Persians, but we have evidence from an early 4th century BC speech by Andocides, in which he mentions the presence of his uncle, Epilychus, at the negotiations that brought about a treaty and eternal friendship with Persia, and a 4th century BC copy of a 5th century BC decree honoring a certain Heraclides of Clazomenae for his help in negotiating a treaty with the king of Persia. These suggest that a treaty was signed in 423 BC, likely after Darius II captured and executed Secundianus and secured the throne. This whole issue is fraught with problems though, but the balance of scholarly opinion does incline towards acceptance of its authenticity and its date. There are also convincing political reasons to explain this supposed reconciliation between Athens and Persia. The Athenians' confidence had taken a blow following their defeats at Megara, Delium, and Amphipolis, and Brasidas was still stirring up revolt among the rest of Athens' subject allies in Thrace. If Brasidas were able to gain Persian military support, he might then move to the Hellespont, which was Athens' lifeline for grain. 
so it was best for the Athenians to secure a Persian alliance before the Spartans could. On the other hand, the new Persian king also had pressing reasons for peace on his western frontiers. His position was still tenuous in early 423 BC, as he was still consolidating his power and dealing with the other claimants to the Persian throne. He definitely didn't wish to alienate the Athenians and drive them into the arms of one of his rivals. Therefore, the treaty would have been a great benefit to both sides. In essence, it was probably just a renewal of the terms from the Peace of Callias from 25 years earlier, but it also included a stronger statement of eternal friendship due to the current military difficulties of both sides. Shifting our attention west, it was now the spring of 423 BC, and the Athenians were gearing up for their annual city Dionysia, and the celebrations and dramatic performances that went along with it. As we have seen, at the outset of the war, Euripides' play showed a pro-Athenian, anti-Spartan undertone. But as the war progressed, themes concerning the horrors of war in general become more prominent in his plays. In particular, that spring, Euripides put on Hicatides, or the suppliants, and it deals with the devastating emotional consequences of war. We discussed the play in great detail in episode 53, but it follows the mythological events of the Seven Against Thebes, in which civil war breaks out between Oedipus's two sons, Ateocles and Polynices. In particular, Polynices raised an army of Argives to take Thebes by force, and both sons would die on the battlefield. Following this tragic event, Creon took power in Thebes and decreed that all of the Argive invaders were not to be buried. Some scholars believe that it is likely that the refusal of the Thebans here in Euripides' play to return the bodies of the Argive dead was inspired by the refusal of the Boeotians to return the Athenian dead after the Battle of Delium the previous year. In addition, Euripides' play is filled with subtle criticisms of Thebes, while Athens is presented as the savior of Hellenism and of true piety, the city where free thought and democratic government originated. The play's purpose, it seems, was to raise Athenian morale, which had plummeted after the plague in seven long years of war. Also, at the same city Dionysia in 423 BC, Aristophanes produces Nephili, or the clouds. This time, the object of his ridicule isn't Cleon, though he wasn't finished mocking his favorite demagogue just yet, and we will see Cleon appear in his next two plays. This one, though, is notorious for its caricature of Socrates who he represents, or misrepresents, as a typical sophist that is interested in celestial phenomena and teaches the rhetorical skill of winning arguments by making the worst case appear to be the better. We will cover this play in more detail when we cover Socrates in a future episode. At the same time, the run of defeats at Megara, Delium, and Amphipolis the previous year had discredited the policies of the Athenians, who had declined peace with Sparta and instead advocated for an aggressive, offensive-oriented war. And so, heading into the winter, the peace faction in Athens used this opportunity to convince many Athenians that they should now consider a negotiated peace with Sparta. By the spring of 423 BC, the peace faction in Athens had won out, and they and the Spartans agreed to negotiate a one-year armistice, which both had hoped would lead to a lasting settlement. Thucydides says that the motivations for the Athenians here weren't all in lockstep. 
Some hoped that it would lead to a general peace, while others hoped to use this time to build up their supplies, to reorganize their forces, and to fortify their positions in the north to prevent the revolt of any more of their allied cities, all in preparation for what they anticipated would be future attacks from Brasidas. Likewise, the Spartans suspected, rightfully, that the Athenians were terrified of what Brasidas was doing up north, so they hoped that a relief from their trouble and misery would make them more disposed to agree to a treaty for a longer period, and that Athens would finally return their prisoners. In particular, the Spartans had hoped to leverage Brasidas' good fortune as quickly as possible, because reports were coming through over the winter that some of the Spartiates still being held hostage in Athens had already died. To facilitate negotiations, heralds and embassies were sent back and forth with free passage that winter, and it was agreed that any disputes would be settled by arbitration. As presented by Thucydides, the final clause in this one-year armistice reveals just how eager the Spartans were for peace. Quote, These things seem to be good to the Spartans and their allies, but if anything seems fair or more just to you than these proposals, come to Sparta and tell us. Neither the Spartans nor the Allies will reject any proposal you make. End quote. According to the terms of the truce, quote, it is proposed that each side should remain in its own territory, holding what it now holds. The armistice is to last for one year. End quote. Under its terms, the Spartans promised to allow the Athenians to have access to the sanctuary of Apollo at Delphi, which their allies, the Boeotians and Phocians, controlled, and agreed not to put warships at sea, only merchant ships, while the Athenians pledged not to receive helots, escaping to Pylos or any other place for that matter. Each side was to keep their respective acquisitions for now. And so, even though Athens was allowed to keep possession of Pylos and Kythera, its garrisons at Pylos were to remain confined within their fortifications, and those on the island of Kythera were to have no contact with the Peloponnese. The same stipulations were made for the Athenian garrisons at Troezen and Nisii, and on the island of Manoa, which sat opposite of Megara. It's not certain why Troezen was listed here, though. It might concern territory on Methana, which Athens had captured and presumably still held, or maybe they had some arrangement already in place with Troezen. Whatever the case may be, Thucydides then goes on to list the signers of the armistice, which included representatives from Sparta, Corinth, Sicyon, Megara, Epidaurus, and Athens. The Athenians involved were the generals Nicostratus, Nicias, and Atocles. Afterwards, another Athenian general, Lachis, put forward a motion in the Ecclesia that the Athenians should accept the armistice with the terms agreed upon by the Spartans and their allies, and the Athenian people voted to approve the terms of the truce, late in March of 423 BC. Since it was successfully moved by Lachis, scholars have sometimes referred to it as the Truce of Lachis, despite the fact that he wasn't one of its framers. Notably absent from the armistice signing was anyone from central Greece, and predictably, almost immediately trouble soon arose. Their hated rivals rejected the truce, as the Boeotians wished to capitalize on their recent victory at Delium, and the Phocians still nursed old grudges against them. And since both controlled Athenian access to Delphi by land, they implicitly threatened the truce's first clause. Despite them having representatives there, the Corinthians and Megarians also objected to the terms, since it allowed the Athenians to keep the territories that they had taken from them. No doubt their representatives either felt like they had to cede to this because of Sparta, or they went against the will of their people in agreeing to these terms. 
Regardless, the greatest barrier to peace still would come from Thrace. While the negotiations were going on, the Athenian subject allied town of Scione revolted. Scione sat on the southern end of the Pelene Peninsula, which is the left of the three fingers of the Halkidiki. And so, Brasidas at once that night from Tyrone crossed over by boat with a friendly trireme protecting him to exploit this new opportunity. When he had completed the crossing between the two peninsulas, he called a meeting of the Scionians and spoke to the same effect as at Encanthos and Tyrone. He even praised their courage, saying that they merited the utmost commendation and that in spite of their geographical position, they chose on their own free will to gain their freedom. If you remember from episode 90, the southern portion of Pelene was cut off to the mainland by the Athenian occupation of Potidaea in the north of the peninsula, and so Scione was essentially isolated like an island. Brasidas says that this was a sign that the Scionians would valiantly undergo any trial, no matter how great, and if he were allowed to order affairs as he intended, they could count themselves among the truest and sincerest friends of the Spartans, who would do everything that they could to protect them. Hearing this, the Scionians were elated, who had not initially favored the rebellion, turning them towards a more vigorous conduct for the war. Then, a unified Scione surrendered themselves to Brasidas and made the unprecedented public gesture of granting him a golden crown as the liberator of Hellas. People soon crowded around him and decked him with garlands as though he was an Olympic victor. Afterwards, he left Scione and crossed back over to Tyrone. From there, he sent the Scionians a large force to be stationed in their town, intending to use it as a base for future attacks on Mende and Potidaea on the same peninsula. However, when a trireme with an Athenian and a Spartan envoy arrived, with news of the armistice, he learned that according to the truce, Scione was excluded from Spartan control, since it had revolted after the truce arrived. Still, he refused to give it back, partly to protect Scione from Athenian vengeance, but also because of his own ambitions, and so he falsely insisted that the rebellion had taken place before the truce. All Spartan allies in Thrace believed him, and let him claim control of Scione for Sparta. But the Athenian envoy, Aristonemus, quickly realized that he was lying. So when he arrived back in Athens, he reported the case to the Athenian people, who at once wished to send an expedition to Scione. But at the same time, envoys from Sparta had arrived telling them that although they trusted the word of Brasidas, they would submit the dispute to arbitration. The Athenian Ecclesia, though, rejected the Spartans' offer to arbitrate over Scione, likely at the behest of Cleon, because instead, in their anger, they voted on Cleon's motion to sail to the Halkidiki and to put to death all of the Scionians. This time, unlike at Mytilene, there would be no second thoughts or reprieves. The last four years had seen dangerous defections throughout the northeast, and the Athenian people were now fully on board with Cleon's policy of deterrence through terror. Meanwhile, contrary to the armistice and the wishes of the Spartan authorities back home, Brasidas pressed forward with his ambitious plans in the north. When Mende, Scione's neighbor to the west and a colony of the Eretrians, had revolted, he accepted them, even though this time there was no mistaking that it was well after the truce was known. Mende's abundant lumber resources and possession of silver, gold, and lead mines led it to become a rich and strategically located city that controlled trade routes along the coast of Thrace. 
There were even confirmed dealings between Mende and Greek colonies in Italy and Sicily, especially concerning the export of its famous local wine, known as Mendeus Oinos. And so by the 5th century BC, Mende had become an important ally of Athens and the Delian League. But riding the popular pro-Spartan sentiment in the north, Mende also chose to revolt. After they saw that Brasidas had refused to betray Scione in the face of Athenian pressure, with this, the Athenians were more furious than ever, and at once they voted to prepare a fleet to move against both Scione and Mende. But Brasidas was no fool, and he expected this type of response, as he knew that these actions of his would surely have consequences. So he prepared the cities of Scione and Mende for the inevitable Athenian retribution. First, he conveyed the women and children of the Scionians and Mendeans away to Olynthos in the northern Halkidiki. If you remember from episode 90, Olynthos was where Perdiccas had already induced many of the Halkidians to settle inland after they abandoned and demolished their cities on the seaboard because he believed that one city would be easier to defend than several of them. Then, in addition to the defensive preparations that he had already made at Scione, Brasidas established a garrison at Mende of 500 Peloponnesian hoplites and 300 Halkidian peltasts to protect both of them. They were under the command of a Spartan named Polydamidus. This was because, unfortunately, just when Brasidas was needed to prepare for a fight with the Athenians, Perdiccas demanded that he assist him on another attack on Harhabius, the king of the Lincestii. Since he was still dependent on the Macedonian king for supplies that helped him take Amphipolis from the Athenians, he could not refuse this request. So for the second time, Brasidas led his forces to help Perdiccas and his Macedonian army. In the combined army of Perdiccas and Brasidas, there was about 3,000 southern Greek hoplites, accompanied by around 1,000 Macedonian and Halkidian cavalry. They were also anticipating support from Illyrian mercenaries once they arrived in Lancastia. This large force was intended to secure Perdiccas's borders against Arhabaeus, who commanded an army of his own Macedonian subjects and a corps of hoplites from those Greeks who lived in his country. Upon entering the territory of the Lancastians, they found his army encamped and waiting for them, so they took up a position opposite of them. The infantry on each side sat upon two hills, with a plain between them, where the cavalries initially engaged in a skirmish. After this, the Lancastian hoplites advanced from their hill to join their cavalry and offered battle. Accepting their offer, Brasidas and Perdiccas led their infantry down to meet them. In the ensuing action, Arhabaeus' Ar forces were routed with heavy losses, and the survivors on each side took refuge on the hills. The victors then set up a trophy, and both sides remained inactive for two or three days. As Perdiccas was waiting for the Illyrian mercenaries that he had hired to finally join him. In the meantime, though, he wished to raid and attack the nearby villages of Arhabaeus, but Brasidas, who did not even want to be there in the first place, refused to leave their position. While they were arguing, news arrived that the reason the Illyrians hadn't shown up yet was because they had betrayed Perdiccas and joined Arhabius. This shouldn't have been too big of a surprise for the Macedonian king, because for most of early Macedonian history, the two sides fought amongst each other over territorial claims. In particular, Illyrian raids often penetrated western Macedonia and threatened their territory in the central plain. Alliances were made and were then broken when it was politically expedient. 
In a sense, Perdiccas' relationship with the Athenians and Spartans was similar to what he had with the Illyrians. And so, at some point before this, the Illyrians decided to switch sides from Perdiccas to Arhabius. And in early 423 BC, a man named Syros married his daughter. Syros's origins are disputed, and scholars are divided on whether he was of Lancastian origin, of Illyrian origin, or of Upper Macedonian origin with Illyrian ancestors. Some also claim that the Illyrians were under Syros when the battle took place, but this is not supported in historiography. Thucydides, incidentally, never makes any mention of Syros. Based on Aristotle's mentioning of Syros and Arhabius, though, some scholars have concluded either that Syros was a prince regent to Arhabius, or that he was a general under him. If the Illyrians were indeed under the rule of Syros during the events of the battle, then they were likely either the tribes of the Ptolenty or the Ancali, depending on the affiliation of Syros with either tribe, and the exact location of his kingdom. Regardless, this treachery of his Illyrian allies caused the Macedonian and Greek troops of Perdiccas to grow fearful, as they were now outnumbered by the joint Lincestian and Illyrian army. In particular, Thucydides states that the fear inspired by the warlike appearance of the Illyrian forces made both the Macedonian and Greek forces prefer to retreat rather than fight. They were clearly shaken by the fearsome appearance of the Illyrians. However, owing to yet another disagreement between Brasidas and Perdiccas, no decision was made as to when or even if they should retreat. And so in the middle of the night, Perdiccas and his forces broke camp and fled towards home, leaving Brasidas and his troops in a vulnerable position. At dawn, Brasidas realized what had transpired and saw that Arihabius and his troops were preparing to attack him, and so he had to come up with a plan of retreat as well. As the enemy was approaching, he formed his hoplites into a square with the lightly armed troops in the center. He and 300 hand-picked soldiers were stationed in the rear in order to repel attacks while retreating back to the Alkidiki, while his youngest soldiers were ordered to dash out whenever and wherever the Illyrians and Lancastians would attack them. After forming up his men, he then gave a brief exhortation to them, saying that the Illyrians may terrify those with an active imagination as they are formidable in their outward bulk. Their loud yelling is unbearable, and the brandishing of their weapons in the air has a threatening appearance. But when it comes to real fighting with an opponent who stands his ground, they are not what they seem. They have no regular order that would make them ashamed of deserting their positions when hard-pressed, because with them, flight and attack are equally honorable and afford no test of courage and their independent mode of fighting doesn't prevent anyone who wants to run away without having a fair ability to do so. Basically, Brastus was trying to encourage his men that these non-Greeks, no matter how numerous they may be, cannot defeat his determined Greek defense. After he was done speaking, he gave the signal and his army marched eastwards. Seeing that Brastus's army was fleeing, the Illyrians and Lancastians decided to come after them, shouting very loudly in the process, as they hoped to overtake and cut them off. But each time they charged, the young men in Brasidus' army dashed out against them, while Brasidus with his hand-picked company backed them up. And so the Peloponnesians withstood the first attack, to the surprise of their enemy. And whenever the Lancastians and Illyrians tried to get close to them again, Brasidus and his men repulsed them each time. Eventually, they decided to try a different tactic. Currently, Brasidus' army was just about to enter the narrow pass between the aforementioned two hills, 
which was the only way out of the country. And so the Lancastians and Illyrians decided to ascend both of these hills in order to surround him, just as he entered the most difficult part of the narrow pass. However, Brasidas had perceived their intentions here, and he had ordered his 300 hand-picked men to break rank and to run to the hill that was the easiest to take, in order to attack and dislodge the few enemy forces there before the larger encircling army could join them. His men did just this, and so because they were able to gain the heights, the main body of his army was able to advance through the two hills with less difficulty. The Lancastians and Illyrians ultimately relented, and so they were able to make their escape. After Brastus's army arrived at Arnissa, the first city that they came across in the territory of Perdiccas, they attacked and pillaged the Macedonian baggage train in anger for deserting them. This further soured the already tense relations between the Macedonians and the Spartans, and from this moment onwards, Perdiccas and Brastus came to regard each other as enemies. Meanwhile, Nicias and Nicostratus assumed leadership of the Athenian response expedition that had set out from Potidaea, tasked with putting down the uprisings in the Halkidiki. They sailed with 50 ships, 40 Athenian and 10 Chian, carrying over 1,700 men, 1,000 Athenian hoplites and 600 archers, 1,000 Thracian mercenaries, and an unknown number of Halkidian peltasts. They did not go after Tyrone, though, as it had revolted earlier and thus, under the terms of the truce, it technically belonged to Sparta for the time being. That's because, despite Brasidas' actions, the Athenians did not wish to violate the pact. Instead, they only aimed to recover the rebellious towns of Scione and Mende on the Pelene Peninsula, or the farthest left finger of the three that jut out from the Halkidiki, and restore the conditions in which the truce had been made. So they sailed with their 50 ships and 1,700 troops down the western coast of the Pelene Peninsula. They first landed opposite the Temple of Poseidon, disembarked, and from there they proceeded to Mende, arriving before Brasidas and his army had managed to return from Macedonian territory in the north. There, they found Mende defended only by 700 hoplites, the 300 men from Scione and 400 Peloponnesians, under the leadership of a Spartan general named Polydamidus. The Athenians also found that all of the men of Mende, plus those 700 in the garrison, had encamped upon a fortified hill just outside of the city. So Nicias, with 120 lightly armed Methonians, 60 hand-picked Athenian hoplites, and all 600 archers, tried to overtake their position by charging at them up the hill. But in the process, he received a wound, and they were unable to force the position. Meanwhile, with the rest of the army, Nicostratus tried to take the hill by a different approach further off. But on the march, his troops were thrown into utter disorder, the cause of which was not stated by Thucydides. And so he called off his attack, as the whole Athenian army narrowly escaped what likely would have been a disastrous defeat. By the end of the day, because the Mendians and their allies showed no signs of coming down from their position and forcing a battle, the Athenians backed down and made camp for the evening, while the Mendians, at nightfall, returned into the city. On the next day, the Athenians sailed around to the southern side of Mende and took the land there. All day they plundered the countryside, and without anyone coming out against them. The following night, the 300 Scionians returned home, because Nicias had advanced with half of the Athenian army to the frontier of Scione and laid waste to the countryside there, 
while Nicostratus, with the remainder of the army, stationed themselves on the north side of Mende, on the road to Potidaea. The Mendians and their Peloponnesian auxiliaries were behind the city's walls now, but Polydamidus did not have the charisma of Brasidas, and he displayed the typical Spartan haughtiness when commanding non-Peloponnesians. He also didn't know how to read the temperature in the room, so to speak. For the last two days, anxieties were running high in the city, and the Peloponnesian garrison was quickly becoming unpopular. Finally, as he was preparing for a sortie on the Athenians, some pro-democratic Mendians refused to fight, as they did not want a war with Athens. In response, Polydamidus berated and seized the protester by the arm and beat him until he fell unconscious. This incited a rebellion, as his fellow Mendians grabbed their weapons and attacked the Peloponnesians and their own oligarchs. Those who weren't killed managed to flee to the city's Acropolis. At the same time, Nicias returned with his half of the army to find the city in disarray. So he launched an attack with the whole Athenian army, only to find that the gates had already been thrown open. And so the Athenian army flooded in Amende and began to sack the city, just as if they had taken it by storm. However, the horrified Athenian commanders, Nicias and Nicostratus, were able to regain control, and they restrained their troops from slaughtering the inhabitants. After the city was taken, and the massacre was finally stopped, Nicias offered relatively light terms to the Mendians, telling them that because of their voluntary surrender, they would get to retain their civic rights, and that the Athenians only would punish those who were the authors of the revolt. The pro-Spartan oligarchs who orchestrated the revolt and who were on the Acropolis were then blockaded, but not before the Peloponnesian troops managed to escape to Ischione. Thucydides doesn't mention what happened to these oligarchic Mendaeans, but it's likely that after a short siege, they were captured and then executed. With Mende secured, the Athenian army then proceeded against Scione. In anticipation, the Scionians and the Peloponnesian hoplites, who were now at Scione, marched out against the Athenians, occupying a strong hill in front of the city. But the Athenians stormed the hill and defeated and dislodged its occupants. After encamping and setting up a victory trophy, Nicias and Nicostratus prepared to build an encircling wall around the city. While their siege works were in construction, a herald arrived to the Athenian generals from the Macedonian king Perdiccas, who was seeking to make peace and an alliance with Athens once again. He was reeling from his failed invasion of Lancestia and wanted to spite Brasidas. Nicias agreed to this, though he was rightfully suspicious of the Macedonian king. It turned out, though, that this would be a critical factor in the war as the Spartan authorities had finally decided to send a relief force to Brasidas, and it was already on its way. Had the army been able to reach him, it's likely that the Spartans could have caused even more revolts in the north. At the very least, it might have destroyed all chance of a negotiated peace settlement between the Spartan and Athenian authorities back home. Luckily for the Athenians, though, now that Perdiccas was back on their side, the Macedonian king used his considerable influence in Thessaly to convince the Thessalians to prevent the Spartan army from passing through their territory. However, they did allow the three commanding officers, Ischagoras, Aminius, and Aristeus, to travel north to meet up with Brasidas and to inspect the affairs in the Halkidiki. Ischagoras was the senior commander, and he belonged to the peace faction, and therefore was no friend of Brasidas. 
He had brought with him two young and vigorous men who were also allowed to travel with him through Thessaly, and he intended to install them as governors, Clearidros for Amphipolis and Posetelidos for Tyrone. These men thus would have owed their posts and their allegiance entirely to the Spartan authorities back home, and could be expected to follow their orders and not those of Brasidas. They arrived in the north before Brasidas had, and so Ascagoras was able to place his two companions in command of Amphipolis and Tyrone without any interference. However, their appointment made a mockery of Brasidas' promise of freedom and autonomy to Amphipolis, Tyrone, and the other cities that he had won over, which damaged his reputation and made any future defections from Athens to Sparta unlikely. At the close of the summer, as these two Spartans were consolidating their control over Amphipolis and Tyrone, the siege works around Scione were completed, and the Athenians left behind a detachment to maintain the siege, while the rest of the army returned to Athens for the winter. That same summer, in central Greece, the Athenians made an expedition to Euboea, which may have been a response to unrest after their loss at Delium the previous year. We don't have any details of it though, as it's not found in Thucydides, but it was mentioned on a fragment by the 3rd century BC historian Philochorus. In addition, the Thebans also weren't dormant, as they dismantled the walls of the pro-Athenian city-state of Thespia, which was situated just to the west of Thebes. The Thebans had always wished to do this, but were prevented from doing so, usually because the Athenians would have come to their rescue. But they now found it to be an easy matter, as many of the Thespian youths had perished at the Battle of Delium, and the Athenians were unwilling to engage with the Thebans once again, following their own defeat and in light of the armistice. Furthermore, that same summer, the archaic Temple of Hera at Argos, or the Heraion, was burnt down. A priestess named Chrysis had placed a lighted torch near the garlands on the cult statue and then accidentally fell asleep. It eventually caught everything on fire. Chrysis must have been very old because according to Thucydides, she served as priestess at the temple of Hera for 56 years. She survived and fled that night to Phleas for fear of retribution from the Argives. Further south in the Peloponnese, during the winter of 423-422 BC, Although the Athenians and Spartans observed the armistice, the Mantineans and Tegeans and their respective allies fought an indecisive battle at Laodicium, whose location is unknown. Each side routed one of the wings opposed to them. Ultimately, after heavy losses on both sides, the battle was inconclusive, and it only came to an end with the fall of darkness that night. The Tegeans held the field, so they set up a victory trophy, though the Mantineans withdrew to Bacalion and set theirs up there. Both also sent spoils to Delphi. Meanwhile, back in the Halkidiki, the year of 423 BC ended with an ambitious but ultimately unsuccessful endeavor from Brasidas. After his return from Macedonia to Tyrone, he had found that the Athenians were already in control of Mende and were now besieging Scione. So he chose to spend the rest of the year at Tyrone, where he formulated a plan to cross over into Pelene and to assist the Mendians. Near the end of the winter, Brasidas made an attempt upon Potidaea. He arrived by night under the cloak of darkness and succeeded in placing a ladder against the wall without being discovered. But his attempt to take Potidaea ultimately failed, and so he quickly led off his troops. But even in the wake of his failure here and in Lancastia, the year had been very profitable for the Spartan general in the Halkidiki, and he no doubt envisioned greater successes the following year. This event concludes Thucydides' account for the campaign season of 423 BC, 
which was the ninth year of the Arcadamian War. Back in Athens, at the Linnea Festival in the winter of 423-422 BC, Aristophanes performed his Sphekes, or the Wasps, in one second place. This was at a time when Athens was enjoying a brief respite from the Peloponnesian War, following a one-year truce with Sparta. Once again, Aristophanes chooses to poke satirical fun at the demagogue Cleon. Constitutionally, supreme power lay with the demos, as voters in the ecclesia and as jurors in the law courts. But they could be manipulated by demagogues skilled in oratory and supported by networks of informants, like Cleon, which we discussed in episode 95. So in the Wasps, Aristophanes focuses on a particular Athenian institution which provided Cleon with his power base, that being the law courts. By ridiculing the Athenians' fondness for litigation, with a young Athenian named Bedeli Cleon, which means Cleon hater, trying to cure his father, Philocleon, or Cleon lover, of his addiction. The Wasps is so named because the chorus in the play is comprised of elderly jurors who briefly resemble wasps in their behavior. Jurors in Athenian democracy had to be citizens over the age of 30, and a corps of 6,000 was enrolled at the beginning of each year. They formed a conspicuous presence about the agora in their short brown cloaks and with wooden walking sticks in their hands. The work was voluntary, but time-consuming, and they were paid a small fee, three opals per day at this point, which had been increased from two by Cleon, as we have mentioned. For many jurors, this was their major source of income, and it essentially came to act as a retirement pension for the elderly to live off of. There were no judges to provide juries with legal guidance, and there were no appeals against a jury's verdict. In some cases, jurors would come under the sway of litigious politicians like Cleon, who consistently provided them with cases to try, and who were influential in persuading the ecclesia to keep up their pay. In particular, many of these wasps would have had Cleon to thank for the opportunity of being jurors on so many trials. And in return, no doubt many would have given him the verdicts that he had sought. The second parabasis in the play implies that Cleon retaliated for Aristophanes' drubbing of him in the night with even further efforts to intimidate or prosecute him, and the poet may have publicly yielded to this pressure for a short time. Whatever agreement was reached with Cleon, Aristophanes gleefully reneged on it in the Wasps, presenting Cleon as a treacherous dog who manipulates a corrupted legal process for his own personal gain. The play begins with a strange scene. A large net has been spread over a house whose entry is barricaded. Two slaves, named Sosius and Xanthius, are on guard in the street outside, but one of them, Xanthius, is asleep. A third man is positioned at the top of an exterior wall with a view into the inner courtyard, but he too is asleep. Sosius wakes up Xanthius, and we learn from their banter that they are keeping guard over a monster. The man asleep above them is their master, and the so-called monster is his father, who has an unusual disease. The two slaves challenge the audience to guess the nature of his disease. Addictions to gambling or drinking are suggested, but these are all wrong, and the slaves ultimately tell us that the father is addicted to the law courts. They call him a philoliastes, or a trial lover. We are then told that his name is Philocleon, which suggests that he might be addicted to Cleon too, and his son's name is the very opposite of this, Bedeli Cleon. The symptoms of the old man's addiction are described for us, and they include irregular sleep, obsessional thinking, paranoia, 
poor hygiene, and hoarding. We are told that counseling, medical treatment, and travel have all failed to solve the problem, and so his son now has turned the house into a prison to keep the old man away from the law courts. Bedelli Cleon then wakes up, and he shouts to the two slaves to be on their guard, as his father is moving about in the house. Ultimately, Philocleon surprises them all by emerging not from the drains, but instead from the chimney disguised as smoke. Bedelli Cleon, though, is able to push him back inside. Other attempts at escape are also barely stopped. In the background, we can hear the father yelling for them to let him out. At one point during the shouting, he claims that the oracle at Delphi has told him if he ever acquitted a man, he would wither away. The old man even attempts to ride out on the underside of the family's donkey, claiming he intended on going to the Agora. Then, in the distance, they hear a loud buzzing as the chorus enters, made up of old jurors dressed as wasps, complete with stingers, who move cautiously as the roads are muddy, and they are escorted by boys with lamps as it is still dark. As they pass by, Philocleon appears at an upper window and calls out for them to help him escape so he could join them, declaring, quote, He won't allow me to go to court. He won't let me do harm to anybody. He wants to give me the easy life. End quote. Learning of their old comrade's imprisonment, they leap to his defense and swarm like wasps around Bedeli Cleon and his slaves. The chorus leader exclaims that Bedeli Cleon's actions are a threat to democracy, adding that the son is both a traitor and a conspirator. He says that he is pro-Spartan and in cahoots with Brasidas. As Philocleon makes several more futile attempts to escape, the chorus leader reassures him, quote, We'll make him run for his life. That'll teach him to disrespect the ballot box. End quote. The chorus of old men then turn around like angry wasps and charge, forcing Bedeli Cleon to flee into the house. While this is taking place, Philocleon tries to make a quick dash for freedom, but is grabbed by the two slaves. When Bedeli Cleon runs from the house carrying torches, the chorus retreats. At the end of this struggle, Philocleon is still barely in his son's custody, and both sides are willing to settle the issue peacefully through debate. The debate is between Philocleon and Bedeli Cleon, and it focuses on the advantages that the old man personally derives from voluntary jury service. Philocleon says that he enjoys the flattering attentions of rich and powerful men who appeal to him for a favorable verdict, that he enjoys the freedom to interpret the law as he pleases, since his decisions are not subject to review, and that his juror's pay gives him independence and authority within his own household. The chorus applauds a sensible speech and splendid performance. Bedeli Cleon responds to these points with the argument that jurors are in fact subject to the demands of petty officials and that they get paid less than what they deserve. Because revenues from the empire go mostly into the private treasuries of men like Cleon. He calls his father a lackey and says that he is a slave without realizing it because, quote, these men and their cronies all hold overpaid executive posts while you're over the moon with your three obols, end quote. These arguments have a paralyzing effect on Philocleon. When the father finally concedes, the chorus too is won over by Bedeli Cleon. Philocleon, though, is still not able to give up his old ways just yet, so Bedeli Cleon offers a sensible solution. Since he likes trying cases, they should just turn the house into a courtroom and pay him a juror's fee to judge domestic disputes. Philocleon agrees to this, and after the proper changes to the house are made, a case is soon brought before him, a dispute between the two household dogs. 
The slave Xanthius brings in two people, costumed as the two dogs, but with masks, to suggest that they are representative of Cleon and Lachis. In fact, a nickname for Cleon was the Watchdog of Athens. Well, one dog, who looks like Cleon and is simply called the dog, accuses the other dog, who looks like Lachis and who not coincidentally is called Labis, of stealing a block of Sicilian cheese and not sharing it. The penalty demanded is a collar of fig tree wood. The two dogs state their cases, and witnesses for the defense include a bowl, a pestle, a cheese grater, a brazier, and a pot. As these items are unable to speak, Bedeli Cleon says a few words for them on behalf of the accused. He claims that Labis is a good watchdog and a noble creature who works tirelessly, while the dog, representing Cleon, stays at home but demands his fair share. Then, a group of children costumed as puppies, representing the children of the accused, are ushered in to soften the heart of the old juror with their mournful cries. Although Philocleon is not moved, his son fools him into putting his voting pebble into the urn for acquittal. The old juror is deeply shocked by the outcome of the trial, as he believed his life was now over, per the aforementioned oracle. But his son promises him a new life of dinners and parties, and so they exit the stage to prepare themselves. While the actors are off stage, the chorus addresses the audience in a conventional parabasis. They praise the author for standing up to monsters like Cleon, while chastising the audience for its failure to appreciate the merits of the author's previous play, the aforementioned Clouds, which took last place at the previous City Dionysia. The chorus also praises the older generation by evoking memories of their victory at Marathon, and they bitterly deplore the gobbling up of imperial revenues by unworthy men. In the second act, the young and sophisticated Bedeli Cleon struggles to teach his father how to act more refined in society. As the two return to the stage, they begin to argue with each other over the old man's choice of attire. He is addicted to his old juryman's cloak and felt shoes, and he is suspicious of the fancy Persian garment and the fashionable Spartan leather footwear that Bedeli Cleon wants him to wear that evening to a sophisticated dinner party. Ultimately, the fancy clothes are forced upon him, and then he is instructed in the kind of manners and conversation that the other guests will expect of him, such as how to walk with an elegant, affluent swagger, how to sit properly on a couch, and good table manners. They even discuss the songs that the father is permitted to sing, avoiding anything that might anger Cleon, who is expected to be at the party. Before they leave for the dinner party, though, Philo Cleon expresses his reluctance to drink any wine, saying that it will cause trouble. But Bedeli Cleon assures him that all sophisticated men can easily talk their way out of trouble, and so could he. They then depart optimistically for the evening's entertainment. There then follows a second parabasis, in which the chorus touches briefly on the conflict between Cleon and the author. Afterwards, the slave Xanthius arrives, beaten black and blue, with news for the audience about the old man's appalling behavior at the dinner party. Apparently, Philocleon got abusively drunk, told crude stories, and insulted everyone in attendance, and now he is assaulting anyone that he meets on his way home. The slave departs as Philocleon arrives on stage, now with aggrieved victims on his heels and a pretty flute girl on his arm. Bedeli Cleon appears moments later and yells at his father for kidnapping the flute girl from the party, which is a criminal offense. Philocleon pretends that she is actually a torch, but his son isn't fooled. As he tries to take the girl back to the party by force, his father knocks him down. 
Other people with grievances against Philocleon continued to arrive, demanding compensation and threatening legal action. An old baking woman holds an empty tray, claiming that she is owed ten obols for the loss of her loaves, and promises to see him in market court. And a citizen with a bandaged head threatens with a lawsuit for assault and battery. Philocleon makes an ironic attempt to talk his way out of trouble, like a sophisticated man, but it only inflames the situation further, and finally, his alarmed son drags him away from the crowd and back indoors. The son finally learns that his attempt at changing his father is hopeless, and the chorus sings briefly about how difficult it is for men to change their habits. And so they praise Bedeli Cleon for his filial devotion, despite his father. Afterwards, the entire cast returns to the stage, and the play ends with some spirited dancing by Philocleon, as the old man still wants to party into the night. Returning back to the political-military narrative, as the winter came to a close in the spring of 422 BC and the end of the truce approached, nobody knew what would happen next. The armistice had been reasonably successful, as it had held everywhere outside of Thrace, but Brasidus's violations had bred suspicion and anger in Athens and prevented real progress towards a long-term peace agreement. Ultimately, because of this, it was allowed to lapse. The truce officially expired in March, but it was unofficially extended into the summer, lasting until the end of the Pythian Games at Delos. That's because, despite all of their grievances, Neither side was willing to break the truce just yet. Eventually, though, the Athenians would lose their patience with the Spartans, who not only didn't punish Brasidas, but even reinforced his army and sent governors to rule the cities that he had taken in violation of the truce, as we had mentioned. In the Athenians' minds, the Spartans had entered into the armistice in bad faith, only to give Brasidas more time to foment further rebellions, which would give them greater leverage in any future peace talks. And so, by August, the decision was made for the Athenians to concentrate their efforts on regaining control of the Thracian area. And in one session of the Ecclesia, Cleon, who by now was a regularly elected general, was able to convince the Athenian people to send him to the northeast with a considerable force of 30 ships, 1,200 Athenian hoplites, and 300 cavalry, and a large force of light infantry from their Lemnian and Imbrian allies. The exact size of his force is not known, but we do know that he did not outnumber Brasidus' army, and the Athenians were expecting to receive additional reinforcements from Perdiccas and their Thracian allies that likely would put their total numbers just under 6,500. On the other hand, Brasidus likely expected no further assistance from Sparta, but he did have a larger number of troops that probably exceeded 6,500, with about 2,000 hoplites, a thousand peltasts from Myrkinos and the Chalkidiki, fifteen hundred Thracian mercenaries, three hundred Greek cavalry, and a large unspecified force of lightly armed allies from Adonia, plus those men still doing garrison duty in Tyrone. Despite their numerical superiority, though, this conglomerate force of Brasidus was nowhere near the traditional elite standards of the Spartan armies that he was used to serving in, nor were they comparable to the forces held by the Athenians. As soon as the Athenians arrived in the Halkidiki, they stopped at Scione, which was still being besieged. After taking some hoplites from the army there to join his forces, Cleon next sailed to the middle prong of the Halkidiki, into the Kofosa harbor in the territory of Tyrone, which was not far from the city. 
From there, he learned from Tyronean deserters that Brasidus was away from Tyrone and that the garrison left behind to defend it was grossly under strength. And so, without Brasidus's guidance, Cleon believed that the city would be no match for his numerically superior Athenian forces. With reasonable luck, he hoped to regain Tyrone quickly before Brasidus returned. So Cleon arranged a rare joint attack from land and sea, hoping to draw the defending garrison to his army's assault on the walls, while his ships disembarked and his marines stormed the unguarded harbor. When everything was arranged, he advanced with his army against the city, while also sending ten ships to sail around into the city's harbor. The Spartan commander, Pasitelidus, stepped right into his trap and hurried his garrison out of the city to repel the assault led by Cleon and his land forces. But when he received word that Athenian ships had sailed into the harbor, Pasitelidus began to worry that the Athenians might be able to take the city before his garrison was able to make it back. In fact, his fears proved to be true. By the time his army was able to disengage from the fighting and make it back to the city, he found that the Athenian fleet had already taken Tyrone. At the same time, the Athenian land forces, following at his heels, burst into the city, killing some of the Peloponnesians and Tyronians in the chaos and making prisoners of the rest, including the Spartan commander, Pasitelidus. Cleon then sent Tyrone's adult males and the 700 or so surviving Peloponnesians and Halkidians in their garrison back to Athens as prisoners and sold the women and children as slaves. The Athenians then set up two victory trophies, one by the harbor and the other by the fortification walls. Meanwhile, Brasidus's relief force was less than four miles from the city when he received word of its fall, and so he had no choice but to turn back. Anticipating Cleon's next target, he marched his men back to Amphipolis, where both sides knew the crucial battle was going to take place. And so, after placing a garrison at Tyrone, Cleon too led his forces around the peninsula of Mount Athos on his way to Amphipolis, with the intention of making Eon his base of operations. At about the same time, the Boeotians were active after the truce had expired. Through treacherous means, they seized the Athenian fort of Panactum in the mountains between Attica and Boeotia. Also, according to Diodorus, the Athenians accused the Delians of secretly concluding an alliance with the Spartans, and so they expelled them from the island and took their city for their own. As a result, the Persian satrap of Hellespontine Phrygia, Pharnacus II, offered the Delians asylum and settled them in the city of Adramitium, on the northwestern coast of Asia Minor. Furthermore, in the summer of 422 BC, the Athenians sent a diplomatic mission to Sicily under a politician named Phaeax and two other unnamed envoys with a couple of ships, because the previous year, which was just one year after the Congress of Gela, Leontini was taken over by Syracuse, an action that was supported by Leontini's upper-class citizens. That's because the Leontine people, upon the departure of the Athenians from Sicily after the peace agreement, had enrolled many new people as citizens, and they planned to redistribute its land to accommodate them. But those in power, aware of their intentions, called in the Syracusans, who expelled the democratically-minded people and scattered them in various cities. But some of the Leontines came to an agreement with the Syracusans, and so they moved to Syracuse, where they were made citizens of that city. Afterwards, though, some of them grew dissatisfied, and so they left Syracuse and established strongholds in eastern Sicily, where they tried to reassert their independence. They occupied Phocaea, a quarter of the city of Leontini, and Brachinii, 
a fortified place in the Leontine countryside, from where most of the exiled Leontines would carry on their war against Syracuse. Afterwards, an embassy from Leontini complained to Athens of Syracuse and aggression. However, an Athenian response would not come until the following year, when Theax and the two unnamed envoys were sent to convince their allies and the rest of the Sicilians of the ambitious designs of Syracuse, and to induce them to form a general coalition against them to save the people of Leontini. Theax succeeded in doing this at Camarina and Acragus, but was turned away at Gela. Since he was met with a mixed reception, he visited Burkinii and encouraged its inhabitants to hold out. Afterwards, he returned to Athens. During his voyage home, he stopped to talk with some cities in Italy on the subject of friendship with Athens. In particular, he was able to secure the friendship of the Epizephrian Locrians, who were the only allies of Syracuse who had not made up with Athens after the Congress of Gela. Thucydides says that the Locrians only did so now because they were at war with their neighbors, the Hipponians and Medmaeans, and so the last thing they needed was more trouble with Athens. Despite their limited success, the continued interest that the Athenians showed in Sicily's affairs may have been enough to encourage Syracuse's enemies to seek help from Athens in the future. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. Meanwhile, on his way to Eon, Cleon made an unsuccessful assault on the Andrian colony of Stegeros, located on the northeastern Halkidian coastline. However, he was successful in capturing Galepsis, a colony of Thassos on the southern Adonian coastline. When he finally arrived at Eon, he called upon local allies of Athens for additional troops, and he sent envoys to Perdiccas to request assistance from him and his Macedonian army. He also sent envoys to Polis, the king of the Odomantians in Thrace, seeking an alliance with him and for him to bring as many Thracian mercenaries as possible. And so Cleon remained inactive at Eon while he waited for these reinforcements to join him in storming Amphipolis. But Brasidas anticipated as such, and so he mobilized 1,500 of his hoplites, hoping to take the fight to Cleon before his reinforcements could arrive. Brasidas left Clearidas in charge of Amphipolis itself with 500 hoplites, and then took up a position at Cerdillion, a nearby elevated settlement on the right bank of the Strymon in the territory of the Argelians. This was a hill to the southwest of Amphipolis that commanded a view on all sides, and so from there it would be impossible for Cleon's army to make any movements without him seeing it. Thucydides says that Brasidas had done this because he had hoped to coax the typically rash Cleon into offering battle while he had so few troops with him, but Cleon, much to his surprise, was unwilling to engage, and he ordered his troops to withdraw closer to the shoreline. Here, Thucydides says that Cleon was beginning to struggle with the morale of his men. The Athenian army had grown annoyed by their inactivity as a result of their waiting for the reinforcements. This began to reflect badly upon Cleon, as he was perceived as being weak, or worse, that he feared Brastus. They distrusted the leadership of their general, contrasting his incompetence and cowardice with the experience and boldness of Sparta's general. But it's likely that here Thucydides isn't being objective again, and he is letting his hatred of Cleon dictate his tone. It's more likely that Brasidas had banked on Cleon being rash enough to attack, but he showed patience, which is not the same as cowardice. Furthermore, by this point, Cleon had been a general for three years, captured the Spartans at Sphacteria, and took several cities in the northeast, so Cleon was not an incompetent general, 
and it is highly unlikely that his troops would have had that opinion of him. Diodorus here relates an anecdote that is not found in Thucydides. He says that the waiting became too much, and contingents from the Athenian army began to branch out from their central control. One group decided to head straight for Brasidus's position at Cerdilion. When they arrived, they knew that they wouldn't be able to take the high ground with a headlong attack, so they surrounded the hill and began to build a stone wall, hoping to prevent them from being able to leave and to starve them into submission. As a result, Brasidus's men began to panic, imploring him to attack the Athenians before it was too late. But he ignored their pleas and refused to move, stating that he knew best when the time for battle would be. The wall went up with great speed, and just as it was nearing completion, Brasidus finally ordered his men to advance through the last remaining passage to the bottom of the hill. Brasidus and his men forced their way through the confined space, utilizing the cramped conditions to negate the numerical advantage held by the Athenians. With very few losses on his part, Brasidus had inflicted the first bloody nose of the battle on the Athenians. Thucydides doesn't provide this account, but he does say that as the days passed and Cleon's men grew further discontented, he decided to relocate his army northeast of Amphipolis to a strong hill atop the western plateau of Mount Pangaeon. Although Thucydides blames this action on the restlessness of his troops and Cleon's own underestimation of the Peloponnesian force, both of which, he says, foolishly endangered his army, it's likely that Cleon had intended to do this mission all along. Because in order to take the city, at some point, he would need to have done a reconnaissance mission on the defenses around Amphipolis in order to have an accurate assessment of how the city was situated in the marshy portion of the Strymon, the size, shape, height, and strength of its walls, and the disposition of the forces and population inside. Regardless of why, Cleon led his forces northwards. Differing slightly from Diodorus, though, Thucydides says that when Brasidus saw the Athenians approaching his position from the south, he quickly descended his small force from Cerdilion and joined up with Clearidas back in the city, rather than wait and fight his way through the Athenians. There, Brasidus began to organize his plans, but he did not dare make an attack on the Athenian army just yet, as he knew that his men were not capable of beating this Athenian force in a fair fight, so he would have to use other means. When Cleon reached the hill near the southern gate, he saw no forces posted on the wall, and no troops rushing out of the gates to attack him. So he had every reason to conclude that he could do his reconnaissance and return to Eon in safety. So he sent out a small force to scout the terrain to the north of Amphipolis, and after everything was found to be safe, he marched the rest of his men to their new position northeast of the city. From this location, he would be able to properly survey the city before he would return to Eon and plan the inevitable siege of Amphipolis. However, Brasidus had other intentions, and he implemented a plan that was typical of his campaigns in Thrace. It was a boldly aggressive surprise attack aimed to throw the enemy into confusion, and it made the best possible use of both his small force of Spartan hoplites and his allies who made up the bulk of his army in this case mostly Adonians from the city of Myrkinos. And as part of the scheme, he needed to deceive Cleon and lead him into a trap. So he began by making a grand spectacle of sacrifices that typically preceded a battle. In this case, he did so in front of the temple of Athena. In Brasidus's brief pre-battle speech, he specially addresses the rest of the allied forces, whom he assigned under Clearidas's leadership. He says that the Athenians are careless, and their advance to Amphipolis is a blunder. 
He then encourages them and explains his intentions by dividing his force and planning to launch a double surprise attack in order to panic the enemy by exploiting the element of surprise to its fullest. He finishes by promising to set an example with his own courage. Quote, Bear in mind that the three virtues of a good soldier are zeal in battle, sense of honor, and obedience to the leaders. And I will reveal that I will conduct myself in action following the advice I give to my comrades. End quote. After this brief pre-battle speech, he sent his forces to the northeastern gate of the city, known as the Thracian Gate. He did this because he wanted Cleon to believe that a sally was imminent and that he would be attacked from this location, which would force him to move southwards towards Eon, past the eastern wall of Amphipolis, where the rest of his forces were located. Here, Cleon would no longer be able to see Spartan movements in the city. Meanwhile, Brasidas and his hand-picked elite division of 150 Spartiates would be posted at the southern gate and they would sally out to attack Cleon's army when they came into their vision. He then hoped that the surprised Athenians would assume, since they wouldn't have been able to see it, that the Spartans had just moved from the northern to the southern gate and were now attacking them in full force. And so they would concentrate on defeating those in front of them, which would allow Clearidas to advance unimpeded with the main force from the northern gate and take the Athenians in the rear. Word was brought to Cleon about the happenings in the northern part of Amphipolis, as Brasidas had arranged. Since Cleon was not prepared to fight a battle before his allied reinforcements had arrived, he gave the orders for their retreat. As his left wing began to advance in the direction of Eon, Cleon realized how slow this was taking, as his army was aligned vertically and he needed it to be horizontally in order to do this more quickly. So he rushed to lead his right wing and ordered them to wheel around, thus turning his unarmed right side towards Amphipolis. Brasidas was watching intently, and as they rounded the southern wall, he allowed the Athenian left wing to advance before he ordered the attack. In a sudden charge from Amphipolis, Brasidas and his 150 hoplites ran out from the southern gate at full speed and attacked the very heart of the enemy army at the Athenian center. The sheer audacity of the attack, combined with their disorganized ranks, was enough to make the Athenian center disintegrate and flee without a fight. At the same time, Clearidas had sallied forth from the northeastern gate with over 6,000 troops and attacked from the north into the enemy's right wing. The result was that the Athenians, suddenly and unexpectedly attacked on both sides, fell into a panic-stricken and confused chaos. It did not take long before the men on the left wing broke and joined those in the center in their flight to Eon. Those on the Athenian right, where Cleon was in command, stood their ground bravely on the hill, repulsing the three waves of attack by Clearidas and his infantry forces, until their position ultimately was collapsed by javelin throwers and cavalry. And so they joined the rest of the Athenian army in fleeing. It seems that the Athenian cavalry had been left behind at Eon, since no battle had been intended or even expected, so the rout quickly turned into a hunt with the advantage resting solely with the fast-moving Adonian and Halkinian cavalry and Peltasts pursuing after them, until the Athenians could find safety in the hills. Afterwards, Clarados returned to the battlefield and erected a victory trophy. In total, the Athenians lost 600 soldiers to only 7 Spartan casualties. Although the battle had been a resounding Spartan victory, it came at a grave price, as both sides were equally wounded in one regard. Greek generals typically fought in the front lines, and in the fighting, Brasidas and Cleon were both killed. 
As he tried to push his advantage, Brasidas received a fatal wound, though his soldiers during the fighting managed to carry him behind the walls of Amphipolis, and he would live long enough to learn of his victory. On the other hand, Thucydides says that Cleon immediately fled when the action took place, and that he was killed from behind by a Mercinian peltast. This is highly unlikely, though, as it would have been very hard for him to flee from his position in the front right, while the rest of his wing stood their ground. Furthermore, his contemporaries believed that he had served bravely at Amphipolis, as he and those who died alongside him were buried in the Karamikos, where the honored war dead of Athens were entombed. So we should not doubt that he fought with courage. Again, Thucydides likes to exaggerate the heroism of Brasidas and the cowardice of Cleon. After the battle, Cleridas brought the entire army back into Amphipolis, and they buried their commander Brasidas within the city limits at the front of the Agora, an extraordinary honor among the ancient Greeks, with impressive pomp as all of his allies attended the ceremony in arms. He was held in the highest regard by the Amphipolitans for his role in their throwing off the Athenian imperial yoke, that his burial spot became the focus of a hero cult as he came to be regarded as the new Achistus, or founder of the city, and he was honored with yearly games and sacrifices. They pulled down anything that could be interpreted as a memorial to Hagnon, the original Athenian founder of the city. An archaeological dig at Amphipolis unearthed the foundations of a small building, and a cist grave containing the remains of a silver ossuary accompanied by a gold wreath is believed to hold the remains of Brasidas. This ossuary, or chest made to serve the final resting place of human skeletal remains, is currently located in the Archaeological Museum of Amphipolis. The grave itself was a hole dug into the existing rock, with limestone blocks and mortar used to create the cyst grave. Thucydides' characterization of Brasidas suggests that he not only possessed the stereotypical Spartan courage, but also those virtues that other Spartans typically lacked. For one, Brasidas was apparently quick in forming his plans and carried them out without delay or hesitation. Furthermore, the rhetoric in his speeches is of noticeably higher quality than the other Spartan speeches recorded by Thucydides. It appears that Brasidas' unspartan virtues raised jealousy and suspicion at Sparta. Still, at Sparta, a cenotaph, or an empty tomb or monument of a person whose remains are elsewhere, was erected in his memory near the tombs of Pausanias and Leonidas and yearly speeches were made and games celebrated in their honor, in which only Spartiates could compete. After taking up their dead under truce, the Athenians at Eon sailed back to Athens, while Clearidas and his troops remained at Amphipolis to arrange matters there. Prior to their victory at Amphipolis, the Spartans had sent out a reinforcement force of 900 hoplites under three Spartan generals, Ramphius, Autocaridas, and Epikaidas to the cities in the Thracian region, but by the time they arrived at Heraclea and Trachis, the summer was coming to an end. They made it as far as Pierium in southern Thessaly, before the Thessalians obstructed their passage, and upon hearing news of Brasidas' death, they decided that it was best for them to turn back. That's because, according to Thucydides, their chief commander, Ramphius, knew that when they set out, the Spartans were more inclined towards peace but reluctantly were willing to send help to Brasidas. However, the deaths of both Cleon and Brasidas, to whom Aristophanes in his piece the following year, called the pestle and mortar of the war, removed the two leaders who were most opposed to peace, 
And since nobody remaining had the sufficient stature to oppose the policies of Nicias at Athens and King Pleistoanax at Sparta, their deaths increased the influence of each city's respective peace factions. That's because, by this point, both Athens and Sparta had had enough. Although Peloponnesian invasions had been curbed for three years now, agriculture in Attica still had been horribly disrupted, and with it, the trade between city and countryside that was the foundation of polis life. And they had suffered heavy losses in battle and from the plague. The Athenians' confidence was shaken by their defeats in the late 420s BC and the unrest throughout their main sphere of influence in the north, including the loss of Amphipolis and the forests and mines of Pangaeus, and the revolts of their Thracian allies, further worried them of a widespread revolt of their subject allies and the possible collapse of their empire. Although this was less likely now since Brasidas was no longer in the northeast, and the fact that the Peloponnesians no longer had a fleet, for the Athenians, the last few years had shaken them, and so this perception was now their reality. Because of this, in an attempt to stop further revolts from happening, over the winter of 422-421 BC, the annual Athenian tribute assessment of 1,450 talents was scaled down to 1,000 talents. Though the list does show that they were able to recover some Thracian cities, which must have been Cleon's work. On the other hand, Sparta was nervous about continuing its war with Athens, when the Spartan Argive truce of 30 years was on the verge of expiring, and the Argives were acting in a bellicose manner, by insisting on the restoration of Kenoria as terms for renewing the agreement, which was not going to happen. Furthermore, if the war continued, the Spartans would risk the establishment of a deadly Argive and Athenian alliance, which no doubt they suspected, and rightfully so, would have led to desertions of some of their important allies, such as Mantinea and Elis, who were particularly prone to switch sides. Many Spartan authorities, though, had more private reasons for seeking peace, because since the disaster at Sphacteria, as we have seen, many had been extremely eager to recover the relatives who were among the prisoners at Athens, and by now a number of these had begun to die in captivity. Also, the Spartans were still concerned about the enemy garrisons at Pylos and Kythera that not only inflicted damaging raids on their territory, but also encouraged helots to revolt. Finally, both sides were disturbed by the degree to which they had been compelled to hire mercenaries to keep the war going. Not only was this a bad precedent, but it was also very costly. And so this led to peace negotiations being renewed between the two over the winter of 422-421 BC. The Spartan king Pleistoanax believed that peace would make it difficult for his political enemies to continue to blame him for Spartan misfortunes in the war. On the other hand, Nicias was cautious by nature, and he believed in Pericles' policy of fighting with restraint, as he wished to avoid future risks, and peace would bring a relief from Athens' troubles. Although his military successes were small compared to his colleagues, this also meant that he hadn't been in charge of any of Athens' catastrophic losses during the war either. For this reason, and because of his public displays of piety that made him popular in Athens, he became the de facto leader of the peace faction. His special kindness that he shown to their prisoners had also won the confidence of the Spartans as a negotiator of such peace. In Athens, the elderly, the landed elite, and most of the farmers in the Attic countryside were inclined towards peace. Still, there were some Athenians, predominantly those who were newly wealthy from empire, who continued to resist peace, 
probably because they were fully aware of the advantages that could soon come their way, especially in the wake of Argos entering the fray. If this were to happen, there would be a good chance that the Peloponnesian League might subsequently collapse, destroying Sparta's power and leaving Athens free to deal with an isolated Boeotia. At the very least, Sparta would be badly weakened and forced to make a peace that was more favorable to Athens. And so Nicias talked privately with many of these individuals, and very slowly he was able to blunt their desire for war. Still, the peace talks between Athens and Sparta moved slowly that winter, over a series of conferences. So in order to increase pressure on Athens, the Spartans announced that the following spring, they would once again march an army into Attica and set up a hostile fort on Athenian territory. They hoped that this would scare the Athenian holdouts into agreeing to a peace. This was a desperate gamble by the Spartans though, because the sometimes highly emotional Athenian ecclesia might have, out of fear and anger, responded by killing their prisoners at once, which obviously would have put an end to the chance for any sustainable peace negotiations. But the Spartan bluff ultimately worked most likely helped by popular opinion in Athens. Countless men and women throughout the Greek world had no doubt longed increasingly for peace during the ten years of the Arcadanian War. But as is so often the case, we know most about the situation in Athens, from which the bulk of our written sources originate. We have already discussed several of Aristophanes' comedic plays, as well as Euripides' and Sophocles' tragedies, which give us some insight into the horrors and unpleasantries of this war that not only expressed the opinions of their patrons, but also many Athenians who watched them and voted in their favor with their applause. Clearly, the popular opinion in Athens was now firmly on the side of peace, because at the city Dionysia in late March of 421 BC, Aristophanes chose to stage a play called Ereni, whose very name means peace. It was performed just a few days before the so-called Peace of Nicias would be ratified which meant that it was written well before then and was chosen to be presented likely because Aristophanes felt that a peace treaty was close to becoming a reality. In fact, the play is notable for its joyous anticipation of peace and for a return to an idyllic life in the countryside. However, it also provides a cautionary note as there is bitterness in the memory of lost opportunities and the ending is not happy for everyone. As in all of Aristophanes' plays, the jokes are numerous, the action is wildly absurd, and the satire is savage. Cleon is once again a target for the author's wit, even though he had died in battle just a few months earlier. And so even in death, the feud between Aristophanes and Cleon raged on. The play begins with two unnamed slaves frantically working outside an ordinary-looking farmhouse in Attica appearing to need unusually large lumps of dough and carrying them one by one into the stables. We soon learn from their banter, though, that these are not made of dough, but from excrement gathered from various sources, as they are needed to feed a giant dung beetle that their crazy master has brought home from the area around Mount Etna in Sicily. They also tell us that he intends to fly upon it for a private audience with the gods. This startling revelation is confirmed moments later by the sudden appearance of their master, a middle-aged Athenian man named Trigaeus. Here, parodying a lost play by Euripides, Aristophanes shows his protagonist rising above the house and hovering in an alarmingly unsteady manner while riding upon an enormous dung beetle with its wings spread, a feat which was accomplished on stage by a crane. After he steadies the spirited beetle, 
His young daughters run out onto the stage, and together with his two slaves, they implore Trigaeus to come back down to earth. After shouting comforting words to his children, he appeals to the audience, asking them not to distract his beetle by farting or shitting any time in the next three days. He then declares that his mission is to fly to the house of the gods on Mount Olympus, and to inquire why they are destroying Greece through the war. And if they will not listen to his reason, he will prosecute them for treason against the Greeks. Then he and his beetle soar higher above the stage, out of sight towards the heavens. The beetle and Trigaeus then descend back onto the stage, as they arrive outside the house of the gods. But after he dismounts and knocks at the door, Trigaeus discovers that only Hermes is home. Hermes informs him that the others have packed up and departed for some remote refuge where they hope never to be troubled again by the war or the prayers of humankind. He learns from Hermes that the gods have been alienated by the two sides' childish squabbling. The audience cannot have been entirely comfortable here, with Hermes' even-handed allotment of blame. He says, quote, The gods were frequently for peace, but you guys wanted war. Laconians, when once they got a little piece of luck, would say, By God, those Atticans will pay. Or if it seemed that luck was on your side, and then the Spartans came about a peace, at once you'd cry, We're being taken in. Athena, Zeus, we can't agree to this. If we hang on to Pylos, they'll come back. End quote. Hermes says that he has stayed back only to make some final arrangements. Meanwhile, the new occupant of the house has already moved in. His name is War and he is imprisoned to peace in a nearby cave. Just then, as chance would have it, War comes grumbling and growling from outdoors, carrying a gigantic mortar in which he intends to grind down all the Greek cities into paste. Hermes departs in haste, and Trigaeus hides in fear. War begins to add ingredients into his gigantic mortar, each representing certain Greek city-states. He then calls in his slave Tumult and orders him to go off and fetch him a pestle. But Tumont returns with news that he was unsuccessful in acquiring any pestles from Athens or Sparta, because the pestles that he had wished for war to use on the Greeks are now dead. As Cleon and Brasidas, the leaders of the pro-war factions in Athens and Sparta respectively, both had recently perished in battle. A disappointed war then goes back indoors to make himself a pestle. As Trigaeus comes out from his hiding spot, he boldly takes this opportunity to summon Greeks everywhere to come and help him set peace free, while there is still time. At his prompting, the chorus of laborers and farmers from various Greek city-states walk onto the stage. They are so excited at the prospect of freeing peace that they can't stop dancing at first. This is followed shortly thereafter with the return of Hermes. After much pleading, Trigaeus and the chorus leader finally persuade Hermes to help them organize the rescue of peace, because only divine assistance is able to get all of the excited and disunited Greeks to work together for something this monumental. So under the supervision of Hermes and Trigaeus, the Greeks get to work, pulling boulders from the cave's mouth. However, some of the Greeks are more of a hindrance than a help, and real progress is only made by the farmers. This is definitely intentional on the part of Aristophanes, because in the play, the blessings that a peace would bring are more so celebrated in terms that reflect the concerns of the Athenian farmers in the audience. Aristophanes' plays, as we have seen, reveal a tender love of rural life and a nostalgia for simpler times, and they develop a vision of peace involving a return to the country and its routines. The Acarnians is another great example of this. At one point, Trigaeus says, quote, Fellow farmers, stop and listen. Can you hear these wondrous words? 
No more spears, men. No more javelins. No more fighting with our swords. We've got peace with all of its gifts now. We can trade in all that arming for a happy, happy song as we march home to do some farming. End quote. The chorus responds, quote, What a day, not just for farmers, but for anyone worthwhile. What a yearn for, hope for vision. See how joyously I smile as I think about how soon I'll see the vines upon my land and the fig trees that I planted as a youth with my own hand, end quote. In addition, the association of peace with rural revival is expressed in terms of religious imagery. Peace here is imprisoned in a cave that is guarded by a Cerberus figure, which resembles a Chthonic fertility goddess in captivity in the underworld a motif especially familiar to Athenians in the cult of Demeter and her daughter Persephone in the Eleusinian Mysteries. More generally speaking, the rescue of a maiden or some treasure from the inaccessible stronghold of a giant or monster was familiar to Athenians in many myths, such as Perseus and Andromeda. In spite of these mythical and religious contexts, political action emerges in this play as the decisive factor in human affairs. The gods are shown to be distant figures, and mortals must therefore rely on their own initiative, as represented by the chorus of Greeks working together to release peace from captivity. At last, after the stones have all been removed, peace and her companions, Theoria, or festival, and Opora, or harvest, are drawn out of the pit by a rope and brought to light, appearing as visions of ineffable beauty. Trigeus and the chorus of Greeks begin to fawn over peace and begin to wonder out loud why she was lost to them. So Hermes delivers a speech, telling the gathering of Greeks both on stage and in the audience why peace left them many years ago. He says that she had been driven away by politicians who were profiting from the war. In particular, Hermes blames the war on Pericles and Cleon, and this was an argument that Aristophanes had already promoted in his earlier plays. If you remember from episode 90, we discussed how Plutarch related an opinion, which had gained such widespread acceptance among later generations, that Pericles had, quote, set ablaze the war that was smoldering because of Phidias' conviction and his fear for himself, end quote. Well, what was the original source for this damning tradition? It certainly wasn't Thucydides, but it could have been the comedic poets, especially Aristophanes, and it is probably in the dialogue between Hermes, the Chorus, and Trigeus that a comic explanation of the cause of the war is introduced. The Chorus asks, quote, But where has peace been hiding from us for such a long time? Tell us this, most kindly of the gods. End quote. Hermes responds, quote, Most wise farmers, listen to my words if you wish to hear why she departed. Phidias, by his wrongdoing, first began the trouble, then Pericles, being afraid of sharing his fate and dreading your character and your ferocious temper, before he himself suffered something terrible, set the city ablaze by throwing in a spark called the Megarian Decree. End quote. The specific connections with Phidias and his prosecution does appear to have been Aristophanes' invention. In fact, a little later, Trigeus says, quote, By Apollo, I have never heard of these things from anybody nor that Phidias had any connection with peace, end quote. To which the chorus responds, quote, Nor did I until just now. That is why peace is so beautiful, because she is his relation. How many things escape our notice, end quote. Even the imagery of fire, which is so distinctive in Aristophanes' plays, has been maintained in the tradition that Plutarch recorded five to six hundred years later, a testament to the fact that a scurrilous story about a famous person is often more interesting and worth recalling than the sober truth. 
After we learn why peace was lost for so long, Trigaeus tries to converse with her, but she refuses to speak to the Greeks at hand, only agreeing to talk with Hermes by whispering into his ear. Hermes then says that Peace is still angry because she has tried to come back several times, but each time the Athenians had voted against her in their ecclesia. Trigaeus apologizes to Peace on behalf of his countrymen and asks for her forgiveness, quote, For our mind was then entirely absorbed in leather, end quote. The leather here refers to Cleon, whose family had gained their wealth from leather making, and so he is being blamed for leading the Athenians astray. Hermes, though, warns him that there are still Athenians who lust after an empire on land, and admonishes them by saying, quote, If you want peace to be saved, you must draw back and stick to the sea. End quote. Then, Trigaeus updates peace on the latest theater gossip, saying that Sophocles is now as corrupt as Simonides, and Cratinus has died in a drunken apoplexy, and then he leaves her to enjoy her freedom. But before he goes, Hermes tells him to take Harvest as his wife. Quote, Take her to the country, live with her, and grow fine grapes together. End quote. He is also supposed to take Festival to the Boule, where she was once housed before. After Trigaeus, Harvest, and Festival depart for Athens, the chorus steps forward to address the audience in a conventional parabasis. The chorus praises the author for his originality as a dramatist, for his courageous opposition to monsters like Cleon, and for his genial disposition. They recommend him especially to bald men and quote songs of the 7th century BC poet Stesichorus, while condemning contemporary dramatists like Carcanus, Melanthius, and Morsimos. When they are finished, the chorus resumes their place, and Trigaeus returns to the stage, accompanied by festival and harvest. He declares the audience looked like a bunch of rascals when seen from the heavens, but they look even worse when seen up close. A slave comes out to take harvest indoors to prepare for their wedding, while Trigaeus delivers festival to the archon sitting in the front row. He then prepares for a religious service in honor of peace. A lamb is sacrificed indoors, prayers are offered, and Trigaeus starts barbecuing the meat. The fragrance of roast lamb soon attracts an oracle monger who proceeds to hover about the scene in quest for a free meal, as is the custom among oracle mongers, apparently. But he is driven off with a good thrashing. Trigaeus then goes indoors to prepare for his wedding, and the chorus steps forward again for another parabasis. They begin by singing lovingly of winter afternoons spent with friends in front of a kitchen fire in the countryside, during times of peace when rain soaks into the newly sown fields, and there is nothing to do but enjoy the good life. The tone soon changes, though, as the chorus then recalls the regimental drill and the organizational stuff-ups that have been the bane of the ordinary civilian soldier's life until now and they contemplate, in bitterness, the officers who have been lions at home and mere foxes in the field. The tone brightens again as Trigaeus returns to the stage, dressed for the festivities of the wedding. Tradesmen and merchants begin to arrive and in pairs. First, a sickle maker and a jar maker, whose businesses are flourishing again now that peace has returned, present Trigaeus with wedding presents. Others arrive whose weapon-making businesses are no longer profitable since the war has ended. They have no wedding presents to give, as their businesses are failing, so Trigaeus offers comic suggestions to them about what they can do with their merchandise. For example, he says that helmet crests can be used as dusters, spears as vine props, breastplates as chamber pots, trumpets as scales for weighing figs, and helmets could serve as mixing bowls for Egyptians in need of emetics or enemas. 
Then, the sons of wedding guests practiced their songs outdoors. But when one of the boys, who was a son of the militant general Lamachus, rehearses Homer's Iliad, Trigaeus sends him back indoors, as he cannot stomach any mention of war. Another boy sings a famous song by Archilochus, celebrating an act of cowardice, but this does not impress Trigaeus either. Finally, he announces the commencement of the wedding feast, and he opens up the house for celebrations. The play ends as everybody enters into the house. Symbolically, Trigaeus rescues peace, harvest, and festival from their long imprisonment, and miraculously brings about a peaceful end to the war. In doing so, he earns the gratitude of farmers, while bankrupting various tradesmen who had profited from the hostilities. He also celebrates his triumph by marrying Harvest. But the joyful celebration of peace is edged with bitter reflections on the mistakes of past leaders. And throughout the play, Trigaeus expresses anxious fears for the future of the peace, since events are still subject to bad leadership, as symbolized by the new pestle that war goes indoors to make. The bankrupted tradesmen at the end of the play are a reminder that there is still support for war. Moreover, the militaristic verses borrowed from Homer by the son of Lamachus are a dramatic indication that war is deeply rooted in their culture and that it still commands the imagination of a new generation. Peace, in such circumstances, requires not only a miracle, such as Trigaeus's flight, but also a combination of good luck and goodwill on the part of a significant group within the community, such as the farmers. A sober assessment by the comic poet. Just four days later, in March of 421 BC, what is commonly called the Peace of Nicias was ratified between Athens and Sparta and their respective allies, just about ten years after the beginning of the war. It was named for the principal Athenian negotiator, Nicias, but 17 representatives from each side swore an oath to uphold the treaty, including both Spartan kings, Pleistoanax and Aegis II, and three other Athenian generals, Lachis, Lamachus, and Demosthenes, among others. Thucydides records the oath, quote, I will abide by this agreement and treaty, honestly and without deceit, end quote. It was intended to be renewed annually by both parties, and pillars were to be erected at Olympia, Delphi, the Isthmus of Corinth, at Athens on the Acropolis, and at Sparta in the Temple of Apollo at Amyclae. The peace was intended to last for 50 years, on the general basis that all prisoners taken and all conquests made during the war were to be returned, with a few exceptions. Thebes was to keep Plataea, and Athens still held Nisiae, on the pretext that these two had surrendered not by force or treachery, but voluntarily. But despite the fact that many others also had surrendered voluntarily, it was explicitly stated in the provisions that Sparta promised to return Amphipolis to Athens, as well as the other rebellious Thracian cities, Argolis, Stagiris, Ancanthos, Stolos, Olynthos, and Spartalos. This involved not only the dissolution of the Chalcidian League, but also the physical return to their own cities of the people who had migrated to Olynthos, Ancanthos, or any other larger city-state. These rebellious cities would continue to pay tribute to Athens, but in order to save face for Sparta, who had encouraged their revolts in the name of Greek freedom, Athens agreed to collect only the original amount that had been decreed by Aristides many decades earlier at the beginning of the Delian League. Also, it was stipulated that Athens could not force them to become allies, and so they could otherwise be neutral if they wished, belonging to neither alliance. Despite the fact that the Athenians gave in to an unusual degree of independence to the Halkidians, this essentially still amounted to a Spartan betrayal of their northern allies that had revolted. 
As for the others, which Athens had already forcibly recovered, including Scione and Torone, they could be treated by the Athenians as they liked. For the men of Scione, this meant death, since the Athenian ecclesia had already decreed their fate. In return, Athens promised to abandon Pylos, Methana, and Kythera. Athens also consented to give back the island of Atalante and the town of Pitellium, which perhaps was on the coast of Achaea. Finally, temples throughout Greece were to be open to worshippers from all cities, and the oracle at Delphi would regain its autonomy. Although Thucydides ascribes personal motives to Nicias for leading the peace charge at Athens, there were compelling reasons for him to pursue this policy. And when the war aims of the combatants are considered, the peace of Nicias was a slight victory for Athens. As a supporter of Pericles' war aims, Nicias must have believed that these had been achieved. Though it was at tremendous cost in money and human lives, the Athenians had won through, as Thucydides puts it, because even though it was not fully intact, the Spartans had failed to destroy the Athenian Empire. And so, if it had been fully implemented, this was a piece which should have satisfied both Pericles and Thucydides. On the other hand, Sparta came out the loser because they had failed to assert the freedom of the Greeks, as they had promised. Consequently, Sparta's credibility as the foremost military power in Greece was seriously undermined. In particular, Spartan reputation for military excellence had plummeted after their defeat at Sphacteria, leading to a drastic reduction of their prestige and authority among their Peloponnesian allies. However, both the Athenians and the Spartans would turn out to be losers, as the peace would not be fully implemented. Still, at the time that the peace was signed, it had brought great joy to the majority of Athenians and Spartans, and to the Greeks as a whole. In Athens, according to Plutarch, quote, It was the opinion of most men that it was manifestly a release from evils. And Nicias was in every mouth as a man dear to the gods, on whom, because of his piety, the divine forces had bestowed the honor of giving his name to the greatest and most beautiful of blessings. End quote. Almost immediately, though, serious weaknesses in the peace of Nicias emerged. The Athenians and the Spartans had drawn lots to determine who would take the initial step in carrying out the treaty. The Spartans had lost, and so it fell to them to be the first to return Athenian prisoners and towns. As a result, they sent orders to the Spartan governor, Clearidas, that he must surrender Amphipolis and force the other rebellious cities of Thrace to accept the pact. Not surprisingly, the Amphipolitans refused this demand, as they did not wish to return to Athens under the terms of the treaty, and showing how difficult it would be to force them, this was when they began to revere Brasidas in place of the Athenian Hagnon as their founding hero, as we mentioned. Clearidas ultimately acquiesced to their desire, and when he returned to Sparta to defend his actions, the Spartans gave him the order, quote, to restore Amphipolis, if possible, but if not, to withdraw whatever Peloponnesians were in it. End quote. Although Clearidas claimed that he was unable to force their compliance, in actuality, he just was unwilling to hand it over. As a result, the Athenians would never recover Amphipolis, which after all was their chief material aim in agreeing to the peace in the first place. So Sparta feared that in retaliation, the Athenians would retain Pylos and Kythera, or refuse to return their prisoners from Spacteria, which was what Sparta ultimately pined for. At the same time, some of Sparta's most important allies, the Boeotians, Corinthians, Elians, and Megarians, also undermined the peace, as they did not share in the Spartan desire to end the war with Athens. That's because they had somewhat less to gain from peace in general, although they had also experienced devastation during the war, and nothing to gain from this particular peace that the Athenians and Spartans had agreed to. And so without even trying, the Athenians had done much to weaken the Peloponnesian League. 
After a grueling war of 10 years, Sparta had suffered loss of life and loss of prestige. Now they were about to lose their allies as well, and disaffection among them placed the new peace in serious jeopardy. Ultimately, these four states had voted against acceptance of the peace treaty in the Allies' chamber, but it was still ratified by the Peloponnesian League, because as per the terms of their constitution, all members had to accept the majority verdict, even if they voted against a proposal. These four states had refused to sign the treaty, mainly because no substantial damage had been done to the Athenian Empire, but also because the treaty did not stipulate that they would receive back their former territories, or it forced them to cede back territories that they had won during the war. In particular, Corinth was angry about Athens' retention of their colonies, Anactorium and Solium, in the northwest, and that their other colony, Potidaea, in the northeast, was once again firmly in Athenian hands. Megara also was upset that Athens kept Nisiae, its port on the Saronic Gulf. In addition, Ellis rejected peace because of a private quarrel with Sparta, and Boeotia, led by the Thebans, refused to give up their border fortress of Panactum, which it recently had taken from Athens, or the Athenian prisoners that they had taken during the war. Soon afterwards, the continued discontent of these important Spartan allies with the Peace of Nicias and the refusal of Argos to renew their treaty, which might lead to a possible defection of those discontented allies to Argos, caused sufficient fear among the Spartans for them to strengthen ties with the Athenians by negotiating a separate 50-year defensive alliance solely with Athens. The terms of the alliance were that if any enemy invaded the territory of Sparta or Athens and attacked them, the other side would be obligated to come to their defense. Similarly, the Athenians agreed to come to Sparta's aid with military assistance in the event that the Helots revolted, an interesting and not a minor concession considering Sparta's treatment of Athens in the previous Helot revolt, as discussed in episode 41. Finally, neither side was allowed to make an alliance with a different city-state without the other's agreement. The Spartan thinking behind this move was that the menace of a resurgent Argos would be neutralized if it was cut off from a treaty with the Athenians, and the disaffected Peloponnesian allies would be fearful of taking action against Sparta, deterred by the prospect of having to face the combined forces of Sparta and Athens. In both instances, though, the Spartans made a serious error in judgment. Nevertheless, the alliance was sworn to by the same people on either side that swore to the peace of Nicias. It also was to be renewed annually by the Spartans in Athens for the city Dionysia and by the Athenians in Sparta for the Hyacinthia. And a pillar was also to be set up at Athens on the Acropolis near the statue of Athena and at Sparta near the statue of Apollo at Amyclae. After this alliance, as a token of good faith, the Athenians finally returned their prisoners from Sphacteria. But why would the Athenians give up their Spartan prisoners and thus give up their ability to put further pressure on Sparta. For many, such as Nicias and his supporters, the prospect of not just peace with Sparta, but an alliance, no doubt harkened back to the happy and glorious pro-Spartan policies of Cimon, a period that had been prosperous for Athens. But the long and bitter war with Sparta had destroyed any trust in the feasibility of this policy, so they believed that they should act generously here and take the first step in creating a climate of mutual trust. And with war weariness being the dominant sentiment in Athens at the time, many were likely willing to give this a try. At the same time, the Athenians still maintained Pylos, Mythana, and Kythera in their control, since they had not received Amphipolis back. And many, no doubt, believed that their possession would ensure the Spartans kept up their end of the bargain. Although peace was made supposedly for 50 years, without its full acceptance and implementation on the Peloponnesian side, Athens was unwise to accept it 
Furthermore, Pericles' goal was not only for the Athenian Empire to survive, but to convince the Spartans that they could not coerce Athens, that the Athenians were invulnerable, and that their empire was a permanent reality. And it's likely that the Spartans did not come to accept that Athens was untouchable, or that its empire was a permanent fact of life. What compelled them for peace was temporary difficulties, and it was just as likely that after they recovered, they once again would seek supremacy and vengeance. Therefore, in the end, the war brought no desired result to either side. It did not destroy the Athenian Empire. It did not bring freedom to the Greeks or put an end to Sparta's fear of Athenian power, nor did it guarantee Athens' future security. Essentially, the expenditure of lives, suffering, and money was all in vain, and the polarization of Greece, which had been unstable in the 430s BC, was to remain unstable. And so, despite this newfound alliance between the two most powerful states in Greece, it had no chance to last. In fact, Thucydides viewed the peace of Nicias as a false peace, a troubled interlude before the resumption of hostilities. And so, this is why Thucydides believes that the years between 421 and 413 BC, though technically during peacetime, should be seen as a part of a single 27-year war. On the next episode, we will begin to discuss the differences that arose after the signing of the Peace of Nicias, the breach of the treaty, and the hostilities that followed. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 98, The Peace Unravels. (laughs) 